This is attorney Andy Mark and telling attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the attorneys for freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going, Mark? We're the Peace Radicals, man. It has to be going good. Hell right? yes. Now, you maybe just clicked on this video having not seen our movement before. And, um, you know, what we like to do at the beginning is give a brief overview of what it's all about. Mark, take it away. What's this whole 3L thing all about? I'm going to try something a little bit different on you this time. Can't Andy. wait. A little bit different. So, look. I already know that you like the phrase live and let live. If you don't like the phrase live and let live, then probably best just turn off the podcast right now. Something's wrong with you is what I think. But I've always said you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who takes a staunch anti-live and let live position, right? By the way, if, if you do take such a position, I'd love to have you on the show. I mean, <laughs> to, de- to defend your position. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear the person who says, no, I don't like live and let live. So, okay, we like the phrase live and let live. We think that it makes a lot of sense in terms of a sort of a fundamental uh, base notion of how we should interact on the planet. And so what we can glean from this, I think, is a principle, what we call the live and let live principle. But, you know, there's different kinds of rules out there. And so there's a live and let live legal principle and a live and let live ethical principle. So I want to talk about them both. First, the live and let live legal principle. The reason these are different are because a legal rule is different than an ethics rule, right? The thing about a legal rule is if you violate a legal rule, there's going to be some type of formal consequence that goes along with that. You might call that a societal consequence. There are some violations in this area that, look, I feel perfectly comfortable putting you in prison for the rest of your life. Those are called murders, maybe first degree murders. That's a violation of the live and let live principle. And so these are really serious violations. They're the types of things that we can do something to you. What's the baseline rule in the live and let live legal principle? Don't be an aggressor. We should live together in ways that we interact voluntarily, not involuntarily. So don't be an aggressor. What's an aggressor? Don't use force or fraud or coercion, at least don't initiate force, don't be involved in fraud or coercion, and don't do anything that puts another person or their property at substantial risk of harm. That doesn't seem too complicated, does it, Andy? No, it sure doesn't. But I think that I've figured out a way to get around this principle. What if I just join a group? Can I then start violating this live and let live principle? We shouldn't have to say this, right? But for some reason, people get confused here. And so what we think, because this live and let live movement, I like to call it post-racial. Like, we don't care what color your skin is. We don't care if you're rich or poor, fat or thin, where you were born, what foods you eat, what songs you sing. This principle applies to all human beings. No matter who you are, where you are, it should apply equally, exactly the same way to everybody. And it still applies even if you form a group. So if me and Andy get together, we don't get to violate the live and let live legal principle either. Even if it's a big group, like an organization or a corporation, why on earth would we ever want corporations to act in ways where they initiate force or they engage in fraud, or they engage in coercion, or do anything that put us at a substantial risk of harm. So if a corporation's doing anything like that, we take the position we should stop what they're doing immediately. And then finally, the largest group of all, the government. Governments don't just spring into existence, they don't just sort of pop onto the planet. 
We create them. These are titles of large groups that we we call governments. They're um, they're associations of people. So we wouldn't want the government to violate the rule. That pretty much wraps up everything we think should be included in the legal side. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So then there's the ethical principle, the live and let live ethical principle. Now, the thing about these kinds of rules, you can violate an ethics rule if you want. There's not going to be any formal societal consequences. We're not going to put you in jail or fine you or put you on probation because you violated the live and let live ethical principle. But these are things that we still want to inspire people to act consistently with. You might describe this ethical principle with the phrase, just be a good human. Be a good person. Aspire to be the best version of you that you can be. And so in this space, we lawyers call this a non-exhaustive list. You might think of some other uh, words or phrases that could fill in here. But here are some things that we promote uh, as part of the live and let live ethical principle. How about be open-minded? Be tolerant of other people. Be voluntarily kind towards other people. Be civilized. You know, we can agree to disagree. We value things like reason and rational thought and a commitment to facts and truth and building high levels of trust with other human beings. What we care about in this space are things that optimize human happiness and decrease human suffering. Now, again, you're free to violate any of these. You can be closed-minded, intolerant, unkind, uncivilized, and we would be the first ones who say you should be left alone. But you're not really a good candidate for the Live and Let Live movement because Live and Let Live movement is a peace movement. It's a global peace movement, and we are pushing these aspirational values because we think it's the best way to get us to a peaceful world. So that is live and let live in a nutshell. There's an important distinction that I think we should pause here on a moment. It's something that you said when you're talking about these ethical rules and aspirational values, which is, in a nutshell, they can be summed up as be a good human being. That's right. Of course, a big question after that is be a good human being according to whom? That's right. For example, in the Live and Let Live movement, we might say something like tolerance is something that should be pursued as an ethical value, and we believe that in good faith. Like well, I, I know of people uh, right now who operating in good faith, and when I say good faith here, I mean they actually believe in their hearts, not whether or not it's the best course or the most pragmatic course, uh, but honestly have the good faith belief that maybe discrimination is the best thing to do, is yeah. the best way to live your life. Um, and so this is an important distinction, right? Because minds can differ on what good ethical principles are, which is exactly why our movement distinguishes those, right? We're not going to come and put you in jail or incarcerate you or fine you or anything like that. You're not going to get a legal remedy from society, in other words, for violating one of these. And um, it's important to understand that that's that's the distinction that we draw, right? Yeah, we can't prove these things up. If you said, hey, Mark, prove to me uh, that a that a good human being is somebody who's tolerant or open minded. I can't prove this up. I don't know. There might be an empirical argument there, right? We know that societies that ha- engage in more free trade, for example, yeah. or that you know have more commerce between different groups, tend to do better. But that's kind of it, splitting no. Here. It's a good point. It's a good and it's a fair point. But you know, as we start getting into other higher ethical values, you know, respect your elders and things like that. I think things get fuzzier. People disagree, and what we're trying to do with this movement is unite people, not divide people. Most people, uh, at least those who would honor the live and let live legal principle, 
probably tend to agree with most of the things in, on the live and let live ethical principle. So anyways, there we, there we have it in a nutshell. Hopefully people will agree with live and let live. I think all reasonable people agree with what we presented, but not all people are reasonable. So I think, uh, and this is the premise underlying the live and let live movement. The premise is there's more reasonable people than unreasonable people. I <laughs> we hope we're hope. right about that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of like I said, is that most people on an individual level, right, they tend to enact this type of uh, behavior in their day-to-day lives anyway, which is why I think it's important that we really drive home the point that you don't get to join a group and all of a sudden you are immune to the live and let live principle. Yeah. You don't you don't get to say we're a government, so therefore, you know, using some principle like the ends justify the means, we're allowed to engage in force, fraud, coercion, or, or substantial risks thereof. Yeah, and thanks for always reminding me to make that point, because it is an important point, To right? me, that's such an important point in spreading this movement movement because that's where we lose most people, yeah, right? right? The average person, I think, behaves in, in principles that are very consistent on a person-to-person level with live and let live and simply can't make the connection in their mind that all of a sudden when you call yourself a government and you grab enough people that you're immune from these principles. Yeah, maybe we should spend more time on that point. You yeah, know, maybe next show. We'll I'm, re- I'm really interested in the psychological basis for why we lose so many people in that, but I really want to get our guest in at this point and stop just blabbing between the two of us. So we got Patrick Smith, um, who's appearing via Zoom. He's the host of the Anarchast podcast, on which both Mark and I have appeared before with a previous host. Um, and uh, he also uh, has another podcast. I'm sure we'll hear about it. Patrick, how you doing today, man? Good, guys. How are you? Good. Take a minute to just introduce yourself to our listeners. Oh, man, I'm really bad at intros because there's a lot. So, uh, yeah, host of Anarchast, host of Disenthrall, which is more of the philosophy-oriented content. We do philosophy and street activism um, and really get into the nerdy details of libertarian principle. Um, We have, uh, I'm the president of a a 501c3 charity organization called Voluntary Virtue that organizes liberty-minded individuals to sort of show that we don't need government to help people in need. Uh, I am the chief technology officer for Float, which is a social media app that is non-censorious, that promotes free speech and free association um, in a modern era where it's all politicized and censored and, you know, we have Zuckerberg banning people. So we're, we're working to create liberty alternatives rather than just constantly, incessantly bitch online, which is what most people tend to do. We, uh, I, I say we, I don't know why I'm... It's not the royal we, me. I want to see people that want to create instead of bitch. And so I've really kind of devoted the last 10 years of my life to doing just that, both in um, in working on new philosophical principles that were uh, like anti-subjectivism, which is something we're writing uh, writing articles on now, uh, to, like I said, the, the charity, um, working on potentially a dispute resolution company to actually provide dispute resolution services in a, that could exist now to solve present day problems better than the government can using libertarian principles very much closely aligned with what you're talking about live and let live principles that's kind of the theme of of my life so what do you think about what we're up to here and and this is where i'm sure you're going to i'm positive you're going to probably agree with everything that we had to say about the legal rules aspect right but where we have gotten some uh the, where we i guess you could say diverge from traditional libertarianism and other freedom movements is uh, those movements don't typically spend a lot of time talking about moral values aspirational values what do you think about the dichotomy that we draw because of the the study and philosophy that I've done, I spend most of my time thinking about right and wrong, good and evil, what constitutes aggression, what doesn't, 
um, how to solve those problems. Um, so I guess I mainly operate in what you guys would call the legal realm. All of the other stuff that you're talking about, I usually relegate to what I call aesthetics, like things that everyone will certainly have opinions on. Most of the, you know, some of them can be good. Some of them can be terrible and everybody gets their own opinions on it and that's fine, but that is subjective and not something I can operate on at the rational scientific level that I try and bring philosophy to that I try and bring libertarian principle to. So, um, I think all that has value and I, and I'm happy to hear that you guys are, are looping some of that into your movement because I, I guess, I, I guess my summary is I'm not disagreeing with you. I think a lot of sort of uh, libertarian movements try and accept all comers, you know, the, the, the crackheads, the, you know, people that are technically not violating anybody's rights but they're just sort of like the unsavory individuals, kind of like you described in the beginning. <laughs> you don't want to be associated with those people. Uh, what's another example of that? Communists. Like, you can be a communist without violating anyone's rights. Well, also, that's disgusting. You probably don't want to stand next to those people because anybody with any amount of self-respect will not want to be anywhere near you if you do. So, like, I'm fine with you guys um, having standards above and beyond just the raw legal don't hurt anybody and don't take their stuff like that is like level one shit as far can i cuss on here i'm sorry oh, yeah no I, problem should have asked that's level one stuff like if you can't understand how to interact with the humans that you're around on a day-to-day -day basis you're automatically out we all got that i think most libertarian types understand that that's easy can we move on now okay now how do we be good people how do we be productive people how do we be successful people that don't just bitch on social media about how terrible the world is. But like I said in the beginning, go out and create something. Go out there and be a good person. Do something. Accomplish something. Teach the world. Make the world want to be like you by being a person that people want to be like. That's I think that's a big part of it. Fantastic. That sounds like that's Love it. About. Patrick, that is what we're all about. The whole purpose of this movement is we want to succeed where a lot of the freedom groups have failed in the past in terms of success, being successful, communicating this message and getting more people to be more freedom minded. We're not looking to just talk amongst other freedom individuals and have little pat on the back circles where we're talking to people who understand these very complex principles of freedom and the non-aggression principle. We want to put it in a way that people can understand and as any good movement tries to do, spread it to as many people as possible. And as soon as, as you pointed out correctly, as soon as you adopt the more unsavory characters into your movement, for better or for worse, you've just lost certain target audiences, right? We don't need to get all the crazy, rabid, foaming at the mouth, pro-freedom guys uh, on our side, though they should be on our side for the message that we're conveying. But really who we need to reach and who, who the freedom movement has always failed to reach is folks on the left and folks on the right, folks that are indoctrinated into the political parties and have allegiances on either side. And that's really what who we're trying to reach with this message in a way that really everybody can understand. Live and let live is something that's universally accepted and celebrated around the world. Different cultures have different ways of saying it. Virtually every religion has a way of saying it, whether it's the golden rule, do unto others, or whether it's a phrase from a different ethnic group like aloha or something like that. There's there's ways to say it and express it all around the world. And that's how we believe we're going to reach as many people as we can. Yeah, let me poke around with Patrick here and see if I can 
trudge up some disagreement. You're going to talk about the communism thing, aren't you? How no. we said that communists no. are communists are disgusting. My first response was, as long as they're not forcing me to participate in their communism, then I'm fine with it. And as long as their communism is voluntary, well, you got to start. Fine. <laughs> you got to start always, always where you start with what's the definition, right? So to, how are you? I, I wasn't going to go there, but it seems, let's go there. Yeah, let's go there. So like, how do you define a communist? Well, I, I can make the same argument for, you know, the the race-based identitarian uh, co- uh, communes of the right being you don't want to associate with those people either. I didn't mean to, like, take a side politically. It's just the a more real-time modern example of a, a group of people that are doing a lot of terrible things right now. So, uh, I, so I, I, we can get into the nuance of communism if that was your intent, but... Um, I think uh, I think the people that say that there's a, such a thing as a peaceful communist is just somebody that doesn't really understand what they're talking about. Well, what so, about a peaceful socialist? Can we agree on that? I think you could have a peaceful socialist, or no? Or do you not? Do you not think so? Well, a socialist is farther away from peaceful than a communist, right? Because they're wanting a state. They're wanting a government to coercively take ownership of all of the means of production. That's probably even worse than a communist. Yeah, I guess it depends, again, how you define things, right? For me, if somebody says, look, uh, I think that, um, I believe what Karl Marx said, from each according to his ability and to each according to his need, and therefore, uh, I think it's a good way to live, to get people together and uh, put everybody's money in a central pot, and then uh, here are the bills I think we should pay, and uh, let's all get everybody to agree to pay those bills out of that central pot. I would call that generally socialist, and I don't think that violates uh, the live and let live principle. Do you? Well, socialists in general would would disagree on their definition of property, and that's where both the socialists and communists become coercive. Um, They add additional uh, differentiators to their property ethic that add things like expiration time. Uh, how long can you va- how cl- how long can you be away from your house before it becomes considered abandoned? If you rent your house, it becomes abandoned and no longer yours. So they add all these extra subjective uh, criteria that invalidate property ownership and justify in their mind aggressing, taking that property, repossessing it, appro- expropriating that property. That's where the violence in those systems comes in. A socialist would say that it's not theft for the government to take your factory. Uh, because you didn't have a right to own it to begin with. Well, they would say that they're being peaceful when they do that, but they're not, obviously, because they're using a more convoluted property system. Yeah. But but suppose I'm aware of all of those nuances and agree with that definition of property and consent to, in, in whatever frame of mind that I'm in, whether misguided or not, I, I consent to being governed in that way. And I agree with that definition of property because I think it's the most effective manifestation that's going to lead to the most human happiness, utility, whatever I care about. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all voluntary. And assuming I'm not being dragged into it and assuming I can leave if I don't like it and I don't want to be part of the commune anymore, I'm free to leave it and associate elsewhere you got no problem with that right yeah but i wouldn't call that socialist or communist i would call that weird capitalism like there's (laughs) nothing wrong in capitalism from having joint shared ownership with other people in consensual ways that's what you're describing what makes a community communist is not how they interrelate to each other consensually it's how they relate to their non-consenting neighbors do they respect those people's property, even by inaction, even like sort of tacitly, automatically, just because they don't, they're like peaceful hippies that, you know, they may not actually agree that they have the right to own that factory, but I'm just 
I'm not interested in violence, so I'm going to leave them alone. If they even do that tacitly, they're not behaving. They are they are respecting the property of their neighbors. They're private, as they would call it, property of their neighbors. So they're not really a threat. They're not acting in congruence with their communistic principles, which says that they should disrespect the property of those factory owners. So in their community, they could be totally consensual. I would just not call that communism because they're they're respecting the property owner of the people next to them that don't consent to their society. I think if that's how you define it, yeah, if that's how you define it, I completely agree with you, right? All that we care about is whether it's voluntary. And people, I think reasonable minds could have different definitions of what socialism is or what communism is. But certainly if you accept your definition, I think we're both in 100% agreement that that's unacceptable. Yeah, I think there's good points in here, which is why I like to say it in terms of do whatever you want with your body, your property, your money, your time. So long as you don't violate the rule, the live and let live principle, that that to me is the easiest way to say it, because otherwise you get into different definitions. Right. So uh, and also we should be clear about the fact that we have a certain theory of property. It's not just a matter of the live and let live principle, which we love. It's also a matter of a theory of property. Now, we don't spend a lot of time on it because I think on this point we've generally won the argument. I think most people agree that they own their own bodies. I think from there, we can generally get to our theory of property. I I think that's not what's preventing us from getting to a free society and a free world. I think the other part of the discussion, which is that not only do we have this theory of property, but we have this other principle called the live and let live principle. And that's where, as you say, Andy, people generally on an individual level tend to agree with it, but then they start forming groups, and that's where we lose them. That's probably the biggest point. How exactly we define the word socialism or communism or even government, I think is less important than that, because I know that um, Walter Block and I, for example, have some, some fun little disagreements on the definition of government. So... I'm glad that you brought up that you, that part of your movement that you're building has a property ethic built in because your live and let live moniker is less than meaningless without the definition of property behind it. Because it without that definition, you can't determine if somebody is letting live. That's right. You can't. You have to have that. And the lack of focus on that in the general in the general world has allowed the left to completely subvert what everyone thinks of as one, everyone wants to live and let live. That's how they already want to live their life. It's just that their definitions have been changed out from under them without them paying much attention because most people don't care about this shit. They, they've weakened what it means to own something. They've weakened what it means to be a self owner. They've weakened what it means to have money and to have property that you own inviolate, like above and beyond the entire world, you have right to own your property. And if they can just sort of massage the definitions and mean that, like, you have a responsibility to the community to help people. Therefore, taxation for welfare is not theft. It's just you fulfilling your obligations within the social contract. Like, they've they've massaged these definitions by manipulating the conception of property. So I'm... I'm probably just the philosophical nerd here that that is sort of triggered by you wanting to slow roll the definition of property with people, but 
I'm probably wrong, and I'll admit that. Most people don't give a shit or understand or think about any of this. So, yeah, stick with live and let live. But please don't ever fail to mention that this is what property is, and this is the definition. What is your definition of property? I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, you know, by the way, I did a chapter in my book on this, just talking about our theory of property. I'm not sure I have a nice, clean, clear definition of this. I I think it all emanates from an assertion, which, by the way, could can be attacked like anything else we say, right? I mean, there are, there are fundamental ideas here. Um, in, in fact, this is the very reason we do not talk about how you get to the live and let live principle. There's a lot of fun discussion to be had here, right? Is this a natural rights argument? Is this a social contract? I noticed you just sort of smuggled in a social contract notion. Is it uh, what Ayn Rand said? Is it uh, economics? Is it the Lord said? Is it something else? And so we don't deal with that. We're very upfront with the fact that while there are many different justifications for how you might get to the principle, we accept all of them. We don't... really don't care about that conversation insofar as the path matters. As long as you arrive at accepting the principle, that's all we care about. We only care about it insofar as it can help people join the movement, right? That's why we had Zudi Jasser talking about, here's why a good Muslim should believe in live and let live. This is why we had Richard Stevens talking about, here's why a good Christian should believe in live and let live. That's all we really care about it insofar as it gets people to the right answer. Insofar right? as when we're wearing our live and let live hats for sure because i i know for sure if patrick was here and we were just sitting around in my backyard it'd be a fun conversation to try to get to the bottom of how do we actually get to the live and let live principle and so i i think there is no sort of foolproof way important to, get there. to philosophy nerds like the two of you no question uh, but not important to the average person as, as no patrick doubt. correctly points and, out and so having said that I do feel the same way about property rights. I think our, our theory of property rights, even the claim that I own me, is subject to interpretation. Not everybody agrees with that. But I think that that argument is much easier for us and is much more widely accepted already than the principle. While there are people out there who, who disagree with I own me and you own you and property is uh, the kind of thing I, as we view it, there are some people, this is, in my view, not the obstacle preventing us from getting to a free society. It is instead accepting the principle and applying that to groups. That's the problem. Because as you know, just as when Patrick was pointing out there and Patrick said, well, you know, you have this obligation and we need to help the poor. Okay, this is just sort of other people are deciding how to use my property. And because they're in a group, they get to decide that theft is okay if we call it taxes and we vote on it and we have these various rules about how we vote on it. Yes, this violates property rights. It also violates our principle. But I think if we could explain to people and get them to accept the principle and apply that principle to even the big groups like government, I think that would be the key to getting us to a free society and world. What are your thoughts on that, Patrick? Yes, sure. Yeah. You want to take a crack at giving, because uh, I, I know you were asking for our definition of property. What, what do you think is a helpful way to define property to think about these issues? Well, yeah, it's kind of a two-part question. You can't answer that. You can't answer it with only one part. So property is, to, to own something is the right to exclude others from the use of a thing. It is the right to exclusive ownership. And then you get into what are rights and who gets them. But uh, the second part of the property discussion is how 
you acquire property and we can go into a, as deep a discussion as you want. You know, the, the most common accepted norm is the Lockean property norm. You know, the three rules you, you uh, get there first, separate it from nature, mix your labor with it. Uh, and therefore you come to homestead something, um, which has been simplified through work that, um, Stefan Kinsella has done. Um, I've kind of taken and ran with as well. Uh, where you can boil down those three lock. I, I call it the neo Lockean property norm, which is just the one rule because, and here's why this is important. When you're talking about things as fundamental as property, this, the more simplified you can make it, the, the more subjectivity you can remove from it, the less points of contention you have built into it, the better a property system it is because the point of property is to reduce rivalrousness, to reduce conflict over scarce resources. So, what you what what property ethic you hold what rules you hold to come to own something is critical and that's why boiling down the Lockean property rules to just the single rule as Kinsella has done I think he was the first actually um, to just first use get there first make first use of a thing and you own it and you have a perpetual ownership right in that thing if you were the first to use it um, perpetual, transferable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is the most boiled down, most simplified property ethic that there is. And any other system necessarily adds rivalrousness to it when they add other rules. Like we were talking about the communists, for example, they say you have to possess something. You have to, uh, in, you have to be on the property. You have to live in the house. Otherwise you cannot own it. Well, what constitutes living in it? Do I have to be there one day out of seven, two, three, four? Do I have to have the, that's my primary residence? Can I live in two places? Can I have seven houses and stay in one each, in one each day of the week and own all seven? Or, you know, like it's a whole bunch of subjectivity and it's up for interpretation and adds a whole lot of conflict over scarce resources, thereby making those property norms less effective at being property norms than this, what I call Neo-Lockean one rule, get there first, make first use of it. So that is property. It's the right to exclude others from things that you own that you came to own by making first use of them or getting them as, you know, you, you buy them or get them in tort or something like that. Yeah. And our listeners will be familiar with Stefan. He was on our show not too long ago. He's a, I consider him a good friend, a very bright guy. He's a great thinker, but I think if he was here, um, I would say, well, you know, it's not quite that simple, Stefan. And I think he would agree, right? Because it's not just a matter of making first use. You got to prove that up. First use of what? What? Who's asserting a claim? What is the claim actually over? What is the boundary of the thing that I'm asserting a claim over? And then ultimately, at the end of the day, a function of property is your neighbors have to respect your claim. That Those are really the three important pieces you need for private property ownership. You need to make a claim. We need to establish what the boundary is of that claim. And the neighbors have to respect that claim of ownership. But again, I, I don't think, although there are things to talk about in the property rights area, I don't think this is the thing that stands between us and a free world. When I was giving my definition, I said, and that goes to what are rights and who gets them. That's what you just brought up. I fully agree with you. You have to have a valid realistic understanding of what rights actually are and how they function in the world for property to work. Yeah. And that's why I've worked on my definition of rights, which I think is the best out there. Rights are mutual reciprocal understandings between sentient beings. Yeah. That's great. So I love that, it. That's all they are. They, and you know, that conflicts with natural rights theorists that conflicts with, um, 
um, theists, for example, that it conflicts with all sorts of previous philosophies that substantiate rights in various ways, but it is the most bare metal, obvious explanation of what rights are and how they actually function between people. They are just understandings that we hold between ourselves. And if those understandings don't match and that reciprocation isn't there, problems arise. And that's kind of what you were talking about. So I'll stop interrupting you now. Go ahead. <laughs> Absent from your definition, though, Patrick, is any notion of enforceability, right? If it's just understandings, we understand each other. Okay, I can understand your claim to a right. It doesn't mean that I have to respect it. Must there be some sort of principle of enforceability or something like that in a definition of rights? I was just attempting to describe what they are and how they function. Um, what comes after that is up to how well we can reciprocate our agreements. Like if we reciprocate our agreements very poorly, then the moment there's a, a severe misunderstanding or disjunction between the understandings, then you go right back down to what I call sort of like the Hobbesian state of nature, where it's just force on force. Uh, you know, you, you enforce your rights by, you know, tooth and fang in that situation. But if we have a more refined sort of reciprocation, which would be like, you know, we come together to form dispute resolution organizations and insurance agencies and ways to handle these disagreements when they arise, well, we can kind of stay out of the state of nature and agree on ways to resolve disputes. Yeah, I guess this is where I part company. Did that answer your question? Yeah, right. it, it sure did. I understand completely what you're saying is that these rights, we're going to enforce them one way or another. We're going to seek to enforce them one way or another. And so the more civilized we are, the less blood is shed in enforcing the rights. I understand. Yeah. And enforcement is kind of where the rubber hits the road, I think, on a lot of this stuff, right? Because we can agree on a theory of property. We can agree on the live and let live principle. But we don't get to be judges in our own cases, right? Because in terms of what does it mean? What, did I make a claim and on the property rights side? Did I make a claim? Was I the first one to use? What's the boundary? All of these types of questions. And on the principal side, uh, is somebody violating the principal? Is this, does this amount to an initiation of force or is this fraud or is this coercion or has somebody put me at a substantial risk of harm? Well, this this issue has to be resolved. There's only two ways to resolve it from my point of view. Either A, I get to resolve it from my point of view, or B, somebody else is going to tell me what the resolution is. And if I get to resolve it, well, then I'm sort of sitting as the judge in my own case, right? So if Andy and I have a dispute because Andy is constantly storing dangerous chemicals on his property and he's my neighbor, I like to use this example from show to show. Yeah, I got, I've been accused of Andy, harboring these chemicals on my property for many weeks now. He stores dangerous chemicals right on his property and he's he's got his dog Beefy you watching. Son of a bitch. Yeah. I know, man. <laughs> So I, I make an assertion that uh, Andy is violating the principle. And Andy says, hell no, my dog Beefy is watching the dangerous chemicals and Beefy would never let anything bad happen. And I say, look, I, I still feel like I'm at a substantial risk. And he says, no. So at some point, I think we have to get this resolved. And I think a lot of libertarians ignore this point. They say, well, I'll, I'll decide. I don't want any external influence telling me uh, how the principle applies. Uh, I'm in charge of me and that's all I need. And I just think that's wrong. I don't, I don't think that that's going to get us to a civilized society. I think it's okay for the community to get together and say, you know what? Storing dangerous chemicals, uh, kind of like what Andy does at his house in, in, a, in a community of this size, stored in such and such a way, this, we've determined that this actually creates a substantial risk of harm. And if that's the case, 
I think they get to impose that decision on us, whether we like it or not, whether we have a different understanding or not. And I think that there are many such issues. Another one of our favorite pet issues is age of consent. I don't know. 18 seems reasonable. 17, 16, maybe even 15. All these could be reasonable. I mean, we've agreed that competent adults get to do certain things, but we don't know what a competent adult is. We got to decide what a competent adult is. And so the question is, who gets to make this decision? Do I get to make a decision about uh, whether an eight-year-old girl is a competent adult and offer her a lollipop and get her to say yes and sign a contract and now we've got consent? And I mean, doesn't somebody have to make a judgment and then apply it to people, whether they like it or not? Or do you see a different way to resolve it? And this is where we send a lot of uh, hardcore pro-freedom guys running in the opposite direction, right? We lost on that show. This was the point of contention between Seth and you, um, which was that uh, he says, no, no, because as soon as you defer to some entity called the community, that's the slippery slope to— and uh, You're talking about Matt. Or Matt, Matt yeah, I'm yes. sorry, Matt Sands. Um, that's the slippery slope right back to the uh, involuntary government organization that we have right now. Yeah, I don't know if you know Matt Sands. He He's in the UK. He runs a project called— Nations of Sanity. Nations of Sanity. And, and what I said to him— is, look, I I think what you're entitled to as a free person on the planet is a reasonable construction of the live and let live principle. I don't think you're entitled to your construction. I'm not entitled to my construction. I'm entitled to a reasonable construction. And as Matt says, some questions are very, very clear. They definitely violate the principle. So if I take out a, a bat and I hit Andy over the head with it unprovoked, I'm definitely violating the principle. If I say something offensive to Andy and he doesn't like what I said, I'm definitely not violating the principle. So there's no question there. But then there are a lot of things in the middle. It's not so clear, like uh, Andy's storage of dangerous chemicals. And in those areas where reasonable minds can disagree, I don't know that there's a better solution than just let the local community make the decision. Do you have a, a beef with that, Patrick, or a better solution? Or what are your thoughts? I'm curious, what was Matt's position on that? Because it sounds like he would agree with you, with my experience. Matt's Matt's position... And And it's a nuance, to be fair to him, there's a nuance here. Yeah, Matt's position is, yes, there are areas where reasonable minds can disagree. He calls those gray areas. And because it's a gray area, we cannot conclude beyond a reasonable doubt that the principle is being violated. And since we can't conclude beyond a reasonable doubt, then we can't make any law in that area and people will have to just resolve it voluntarily. Let me let me attempt to steel man his logic here a little bit because I was impressed by how he phrased it, which is that if we don't apply the same standard that we do to our criminal law, so beyond a reasonable doubt, before we violate somebody's rights potentially, right? If you come storming in, if you have something less than beyond a reasonable doubt that I'm creating a substantial risk of harm with my chemicals in my house, and you get the mob together and bust down my door and pull me out screaming in the middle of the night and maybe shoot Beefy, heaven forbid, or something like that. You better be... Beefy's my uh, English bulldog at home. 
Oh, okay. I think Sand's argument is that if you do it with anything less than the same standard that we apply to our criminal cases, you're acting with criminal recklessness. And I appreciate that argument. I do too. Yeah. I just think he's wrong about that because I think that while applying such a high standard to a criminal conviction makes perfect sense because... Um, a a person who's actually guilty going free isn't the end of the world. We'd rather have 10 guilty people going free than one innocent person getting convicted. So in that regard, we're fine. But in the issue of determining who's violating the principle, uh, we're actually figuring out, if, if you will, what the law ought to be. And if we use a beyond a reasonable doubt standard here, then the person who is suffering the violation of the principle and could even prove it, say, by clear and convincing evidence or just the ordinary preponderance of the evidence, which is more than 50 percent, which is the typical standard we use in in almost all civil cases, then I think that there's going to be an innocent victim suffering violations of the rule. And I think that's just as unjust as accusing somebody of violating the rule for less than beyond a reasonable doubt. I still think the standard for convicting someone of a serious violation, and what I mean by a serious violation, is one that could subject you to jail or prison, which are the violations I laid out earlier, because any violation of the principle, as we discussed earlier, is a criminal violation. I think the standard should be beyond a reasonable doubt. But in terms of how the principle applies... I don't think I get beyond a reasonable doubt protection. I think what I'm entitled to is a reasonable judgment about how the principle applies. And then if we do this in a small, um, as small a jurisdiction as possible, towns, cities, that kind of thing, well, then we're going to get uh, just by market forces, the best rules will rise to the surface because it's the lowest transaction cost to move to another community. This is what makes sense to me. What are your thoughts on on this debate, Patrick? Well, I've spent... Six plus hours debating Matt. Um, I think my disagreement with him is more nuanced than. I I don't want to debate him without him here. So, you know, that's not really fair. But um, we had him on our show just recently and he spent an hour detailing his position. Maybe we'll invite you both back together. Yeah, that would be great to get everybody. But but go ahead and tell us the nature of your guys' disagreement. Well, I, I basically said I was done debating him until he said something new. So it, it kind of ended badly. And we're, you know, I'm friends with, friendly with him. I'm not like that that came off more shitty than it is. But after six and a half hours, it's like, okay, I don't, we're not getting anywhere. But um, I, but I, I might agree with the part that you disagree with. So let me try and lay it out and see if we still, you know, if we can have a, an interesting conversation. And this is interesting because I thought you guys were going to want to stay like high level, live and let live applicable to everyone. But you guys are getting into some pretty detailed, nuanced yeah, you know, we see, here, see so. there's two different types of shows that we do here, and I think both are really yeah. important. And co- and conversations that we have with folks like you who understand all of these arguments, this is going to be our sophisticated libertarian pro-freedom crowd that are going to be watching this so that we can they can see we're still very much one of them, and we care about these issues deeply. We care about the foundational and philosophical principles of the movement. Then there's other types of things where maybe we're talking to somebody who's never really thought about these things and has kind of a surface level understanding of it that's an important crowd to reach too so we think both of these types of shows are really important fair enough dive dive as deep as you want the first disagreement i had with matt is on his definition of rights where they come from um he he believes in a more what i term non-derogatorily 
uh, spiritual definition of sort of self-ownership that is based on just sort of nothing. Um, that's disingenuous. Uh, I hate debating people that aren't in front of me, but he bases everything on self-ownership. He says that that is axiomatic. Uh, and I say self-ownership doesn't exist unless people agree that you own yourself. Like unless you get agreement between people that's reciprocated, self-ownership ceases to exist and you're just in a state of nature. So that's the first disagreement, but that's not really germane to the question you brought up. The second disagreement that I had with him was that, so he says the word lines in the sand uh, a lot to talk about these continuum problems that exist in certain areas that I say have not been thought about enough. They have not these ideas, these problems, these continuums that have not been refined to the point where we found the appropriate answer. Age of consent is maybe a quintessential example of that because uh, everybody thinks of age of consent in terms of, you know, we got to pick a, an age um, behind which is um, you can't consent and beyond which you're an adult that's fully responsible for themselves. Uh, and so they see that as a continuum that doesn't have a right answer. And he uses that as like, okay, well, we have to accept the fact that there is not a right answer to that problem. It is a continuum. We must draw a line in the sand. And listen, it's been like two years since I've talked to him. So I could totally be mischaracterizing him. And I hate when people do that to me. So please, I'm right now he's yelling at his screen. That's not my position. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, if I'm getting it wrong, Matt, I, I apologize to you. It's been a long time. But he'll say that we need to draw a line in the sand. We need to, as a community... Pick an age on the continuum and and enforce that inside our community. To which, okay, if you if what your community, what's your definition of community? A group of people that have agreed to live together and resolve disputes according to a set of rules that they've consented to? Fine, we don't have a disagreement. And then I push him farther and say, okay, well, what about your neighboring community that has picked a different age? And he'll and he'll say, well, we would be able to enforce that line in the sand on them as well. I would say, but wait, they have not consented to that line in the sand. They're a different community with different agreements between themselves. He says it doesn't matter. We have a line in the sand. That is sort of I'm, I'm afraid that I've oversimplified the discussion, but I can't give it to you in any shorter form than, or any I, I can't do any better than that right now. So we um, talked about this exact issue with him and it led to a discussion of what some might describe as federalism or a concept that there's a higher court to which local communities must answer to. Yeah. I the think, word must answer to is very unlibertarian. I don't very, think so. I don't think so. Very uh, say, say, let me just, let me just tell you why I disagree. What if I say, look, I don't agree to anything you're saying. I don't agree to your theory of property and I don't agree to your principle. Uh, I, I'm bigger and badder, and uh, I take what's mine, whether you like it or not. I expect what you're going to say back to me is, <laughs> sorry, Mark, I, I don't need your agreement. Uh, I've got a theory of property. Uh, my theory of property says I own this piece of property here, and uh, we're in a clash now. I'm going to impose my rule on you whether you like it or not, and I think you'd be in exactly in the right. I think we get to tell the thief that, sorry, even though you don't agree, we, we are imposing, now that there's more of us than there are of you, we are imposing our philosophy on you. 
And that's exactly what we're trying to do with the live and let live movement. But hold on, you, you just Martin Bailey. Are you familiar with the term Martin Bailey? The Martin no. Bailey argument, no. argument strategy. It's when it's when you move back and forth between an easily defensible position and a hard hard to defend position. You just went from a continuum problem called age of consent that's very murky and gray to theft. Well, theft is easy to define. Like there's no there's no conflict there. Like we're talking about a hard to define thing where there is going to be a disagreement on where that line in the sand as he would say is right. So if we have a, an easily definable term, that's much easily mitigated or litigated. You guys are both lawyers, right? Holy crap. And you know, it's so, lawyers. it's so funny no. that you say that theft is so easy. I mean, just by total coincidence, right before I stepped into this room, I was working on a case there. Our client is charged with theft and it's extremely difficult to tell if the conduct alleged in that case was theft. There's lots of gray areas, for example, and kind of related. Can you steal something that's garbage? Can you steal something that's been discarded? Is that still theft? What's the when does the claim of property in? There are lots of tough questions about that. But well, that's to- easy. I, I would say that's an easy answer. It's like you would ask the person that owns it. Like if you're if you're asserting a higher claim to that garbage property, you go to the person with the previous claim and say, did you abandon that? And if he says yes, then the the guy can get the garbage. If he says no, then he's got the higher claim. This this is not hard. Well, that's easy if they admit that that's their position. Oftentimes, discarded property turns out to be valuable after the fact in which a different claim is asserted. And I understand what you're saying that, you know, as long as you figure out who has the valid claim, but these these areas can be very gray and very sketchy. also bona fide purchaser issues, right, which are very difficult. You know, uh, you sell something to me and then you sell it to Andy. Anyway, Same. anyway, engage. I, I agree with Patrick for the sake of this uh, uh, example. Well, this? Engage the age of Compared consent. Let's, age of consent. Let's just say that. Compared to age of consent, theft is simple, right? Like, we we can agree with that, right? Sure. No, we can agree. Oh, okay. Well, well, we could use fraud, I don't which think, is. I don't think he agrees. We could I don't use, think he agrees. We, <laughs> we could use fraud, of course, which is much more difficult, right? And so is coercion. Is fun, by the way. I absolutely love these conversations. Yeah, just I mean, so it's you know, yeah, is, this, they're this just. Is what I live for. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, there are just so many. Uh, areas of of theft law and uh, issues of property law that we see on in the criminal context all the time where the prosecutor might say no the person uh uh you know when they played the three card monty they didn't understand everything going on and then there's a, no no he consented to the possibility that the money not, might be misplaced and there's so many different sticky areas but Patrick, for the for the sake of this conversation, let's get back to uh, to age of consent. I'm with we'll you. We'll talk about both age of consent and theft. Okay, I would just want to make sure that we're not ascribing like the failings of the statist United States legal system to what could exist in free society with competitive legal dispute resolution organizations. Right? Fair, fair yeah. enough. So let's go to that. Government va- has no, the government has no onus to improve on their dispute resolution practices, which would probably exist in a. Go ahead. Let's go back to that federal court, the federalism uh, idea okay. that they're going to impose their uh, general, uh, sorry, I should say a reasonable construction, what they've decided, what line they've drawn in the stand, they're going to impose it on all co- uh, local communities, whether they want to or not. A, a concept that you've just uh, asserted is very unlibertarian um, and very... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I didn't want to misrepresent that position. Oh, yeah. Okay. So yes, yeah, agreed. So yep. community number two. So community number one has, let's say, they've called their age of consent twenty or something like that, and they have some sort of basis. 
neighboring community has decided, you know, the Lord told us, or whatever reason, you know, we we saw some sort of, you know, a sign in the moon or something like that. We've decided that our age of consent is eight years old. Okay, well, now Matthew Sands says, well, we've drawn a line in the sand, um, and so we get to go over there and uh, impose it because we've drawn a line in the sand. And your your answer to Matt is, okay, well, they've drawn their line in the sand. Whose sand is, you know, line in the sand is more important. By the way, side issue, I think the only reason why Matthew Sands uses that term line in the sand is because it's his last name and he wants to be associated with these philosophical principles. So that's could, my side theory. So, sorry if I'm misrepresenting you, Matt. But at any rate, the federal government gets to take a look now, right? They get to come in and say, well, here's a reasonable con- reasonable construction of the live and let live principle. And so we're going to impose it on the eight-year-old society as the age of consent, whether they want to or not. What's the problem with a governing body drawing a line in the sand? Is it dangerous? A non-consensual governmental body uh, exerting force on people is a violation of libertarian principle. That's the problem with but, that. But, now, but let if me they're... also clarify. I'm... Oh, go go ahead. ahead. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to differentiate myself from Matt's line in the sand thing. Like my position on these continuum problems is that it's lazy. And I had this, this, this discussion, let's call it, with Walter Block as well, that it's, it's an easy, lazy thing to do to just say, that's a continuum problem. Uh, wash your hands and walk away. I think if we just apply some more reason and thinking to it, we can actually come up with actual answers to things like age of consent. Like if we have a clear conception of what rights are and how you acquire them and how they exist and function, then we can also come up with an equation to evaluate people on an individual basis on whether or not they have grown up and achieved the capacities required to do things like reciprocate rights. And you can test for that. And you can see if this individual has that and see if the the, uh, you know, rights of sort of like con- of consensual self ownership um, start to apply to that person yet. If they have their agency yet, we can test for it now because we've put in the thought to come up with what it takes to be a rights reciprocating individual. So that's where I'm at on it. I'm like, let's think about it more. Let's not be lazy and be like, oh, line in the sand. Now we can force everybody, you know. It's like We're no, in agreement guys. with you on that. We, we need to think about these things. Right? Yeah, and it's funny that you no, mentioned they- that because I gave Walter a little bit of a hard time myself. I, in fact, I said to him, Walter, I'm sure it's fun to sit up there in academia and just say, well, it's a continuum problem and move on. But here in the real world where I live, in the criminal courts, we got to make decisions about things and how do, how are we going to decide? And so I actually... And by the way, the only way we're going to be able to sell this to the greatest amount of people, right? We have to give pragmatic, not in the clouds philosophical, but down boots on the ground, real world answers right. to these issues. I, I personally favor um, a system where uh, we pick a number and above that, uh, generally you're presumed to be competent and we pick a number and below that you're presumed to not be competent. And in between what Matt would call the gray area, I think we should have a hearing. I think we should look at this very carefully and get a psychologist on board and call witnesses and figure out if the person's able to consent. But, but to, real, to, real quick, explain what a presumption is. I think this is because I'm so partial to this idea, just legally speaking for the non-lawyers. Explain yeah, well, what this Well, means. we start with the attitude that the person who's, let's just say, 18 is the age and above that you're presumed competent. 
If somebody's 20, then the starting point is they're competent unless there's strong evidence to show otherwise. And of course, there are people above 18 who are not competent, right? They have mental health issues. And then the same with the age below. But I think there's a certain age, like the eight-year-old. I don't think we need to have a hearing on the eight-year-old, right? I think we know with pretty good certainty that if somebody, if some community says for whatever reasons, uh, we've decided in our community that eight-year-old is the age of consent, what's really happening here is we can decide as the neighboring community to defend the rights of the eight-year-old, right? We have a right to defend a third party who's having the principle violated upon them. And so this is just more of a sort of intellectual way to do it, right? To say, look, the court's job is not to substitute their, their judgment for the lower community, but to determine are they outside of a recognized, what I like to call a realm or range of reasonableness. So I don't have any problem with a court saying, Eight years old is unreasonable. Therefore, uh, your rule about an eight-year-old age of consent is invalid. We, we're not going to recognize that rule. What, and, and again, let me just throw this out to you as well, Patrick. And, and, and to be clear, Patrick, it would certainly be involuntary enforcement if there was somebody who went into the eight-year-old age of consent community and shut it down, right? And the, the, how we would justify that is we would be, say that it's in defense of the eight-year-olds, right? We're, we're noticing a an atrocious violation on a large scale of something we call the live and let live principle. And so we're going to go enforce it whether or not they want us to. Right. Why, this, why is that? Why, why is that so inherently uh, anti-freedom? And this gets market forces on the question, too. Right. Because if we decide that 14 is the lower edge in a community picks 13, we may not have sort of, if you will, the political will. We may say, well, those people are crazy over there, but hell, I'm not going to charge but over there. But there's a transaction cost yeah, of doing it, it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's not, not worth it. Right. We're not going to do it. But eight-year-old, we may say, you know, we're going to do something about it. And I think that leaves those fuzzy edges appropriately fuzzy uh, because, look, our, our theory doesn't fit perfectly in all cases. We both know that, right? I mean, we have some rough edges here and there that I think we need to resolve. So I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that because yeah, I want to ask you I want to ask you a different question. There's so much here. There's so much here. I'm trying not to like talk for hours, but there's a lot of points to make. First of all, I want to say don't conflate my uh, saying that a government enforcing arbitrary rules, a federal government enforcing arbitrary rules would be a violation of libertarian principle. Uh, that's not my position. Like, I'm not saying that um, mm. these lines in the sand is the way to do it. I'm saying the way to do it is to come up with a test based on what rights are. So if, um, I, I guess, the full nerdy philosopher definition of rights is that they are mutual reciprocal understandings between, and that should be afforded to all beings who are or will become apperceptive to both advanced conceptualization, that's part one, and gratification deferral, long-term future planning. So those are the two capacities. Ooh, that you was the long, uh, nerdy philosophical version. I'll give you that. <laughs> you asked for it. You asked for it. <laughs> so, no, like, if I'm going to be able to reciprocate rights with somebody, those are the two capacities I have to have. I have to have the ability to conceive of rights. I have to be able, I have to have the mental capacity to understand a concept called rights, what that is, how it functions. The second thing I need is the ability to defer gratification towards those ends. I need the I need the mental capacity to not grab and steal your stuff because I want it and I need it. I need the capacity to put that off and say, no, I'm not going to steal from people in service to 
this concept called rights that I'm reciprocating with the people around me. Those two capacities are bare minimum necessary for reciprocating rights with people. So maybe we can construct a test to see if um, somebody on the line, uh, a 15 year old, let's just say this is a disgusting conversation, right? And it's it's fraught with with terrible accusations that I'm not trying to go. I'm just trying to talk through this for the sake of argument. Let's say that we can find a really advanced, intelligent, um, like ahead of their time, uh, 15 year old that is already like planning for college, has a savings account, maybe started a business. Like they're, they're over exemplifying these two qualities needed to show that not only can they understand rights, but they're already reciprocating them with people. They're already deferring gratification in the service of these rights. Like that's a testable, definite yes or no answer to that question that we could use to get rid of this continuum problem. It's like, look, if you have these two capacities, you have the rights and the responsibility of reciprocating rights with the people around you. If you don't, then you don't yet. So that's Patrick's solution to this problem. Um, what was the question you asked? No, me? no, that's, that's a great. Let me just comment first. I, let me just comment first. I think that's a great solution to this problem. And also, I mean, the only tweak that I would do there, or maybe it's not even a tweak to what you think, but I would. I think this is where a presumption, like Mark was yes. talking about, is very, very helpful, right? If we see something, we come up with the number, we draw the line in the sand, and rather than just saying, "But if you're one day under eighteen, or one day over tw under twenty, or one day under whatever the line is that we drew in the sand," that's the end of that. And that's, you know, that's no consent can be possible. That's what we currently do, uh, unfortunately, in most areas. But rather, instead of that saying, look, if you're under that age that we drew in the sand, um, we're suspicious of that. We want to we want to treat it with suspicion, a suspicion we might call a presumption. You're presumed to be not competent, but you can change our mind. If you can show that that 15-year-old's planning for college and is a genius and is smarter than the average 40-year-old, it, it, it can be swayed. Then that's where I think a presumption could modify your position to make it even more effective. Yeah, I like it as well. I think it's good. I think it's it's got some practicality issues, right? Because we can't look at every single 15-year-old and conduct a hearing. This requires us to do a hearing on every single 15-year-old. We'd be, we'd be doing nothing else. This would be litigation just on determining who's competent. And so I, I like it as a way— Oh, you would need a dispute. You would need a dispute first. It wouldn't. You just wouldn't. Well, go some people testing. may want to know yeah. in advance, right? If you're if you're getting ready to have sex with a person, you might want to figure out in advance whether or not the community you live in is going to deem this person to be competent or not. Uh, because having a hearing after the fact here, and if could, you're operating in those gray areas, you probably want to be extra cautious. Obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so let me throw this at you. Let me let me throw this at yeah. you. Let me make a bold statement. I don't really care. Well, actually, let me let me back up before I say this. You agree we need laws, right? Depends on your definition of laws. Laws are rules for which if you break, we get to do something to you, like the rule against theft. We I would make a law that says you don't get to steal stuff. And if you break that rule, we get to do something to you. We grab you. We give you a scrupulously fair trial. Uh, but if it turns out you actually violated the principle, then we get to determine what sanction is appropriate. And it could be jail. I agree that laws that I consent to are valid. Well, but the, the thief might say the same thing. He's going to say, well, I mean, I, sure, laws that mm -hmm. I consent to, and I'm not consenting to a rule against theft. But we don't, mm -hmm. don't we say back to him, you don't have to consent. We're going to impose the live and let live principle on all people 
whether they, not only that, the our theory of property, we're going to impose those two things on everybody, whether they like it or not. Do you have any issue with that? Look, you guys are sitting right square on the reason why I did the work I've done over the past five years to develop a moral philosophy that I call anti-subjectivism. And I, I was going to call it other words, but they were already taken. And so what the point of this is that the reality of the situation that we actually exist in is one without any moral code. Rights do not exist. And that triggers all natural law adherence. That triggers anybody that believes in God. Usually that triggers everybody. But the reality is if I punch you right now, an anvil doesn't fall out of the fucking sky and hit me on the head. Andy's like, loving what you're right, saying right you, now. You have no idea how much I, I always tell Mark about this. Andy's Whenever he starts it. talking about natural law, I'm like, Mark, we made it all up. Human beings I, just make all this stuff I, I, up. <laughs> I know. I knew both of you guys were going to be blood brothers. It's, it's, it's here a on matter this of. Issue. It's a matter of can we structure the the things that we made up in a way that we can be productive and not kill each other? Yes, I agree with both of you here. I agree with so both. Let of me. You. Let me. I'm just getting started. Let me. Please don't now. This is so, so the point is the reality that we live in is one that does not come with moral rules woven into the fabric of reality. That's just fact and if you have evidence to the contrary i would freaking pay you to see it okay i've asked everybody they've all failed um that's the state of nature that's a hobbesian term i don't know if you guys have read hobbes but it's just the state of nature it's what we exist in we as humans and potentially i don't know space aliens in the future we might find out have the capacity to make agreements between each other and to defer gratification to plan to make our futures better and more peaceful so that we're more prosperous and our children are safer and you know we can we can live longer happier healthier more safe lives we have that capacity that capacity exists in function by us agreeing with each other i won't punch you if you won't punch me i won't steal your shit if you don't steal my shit that is right that is us elevating ourselves mostly as a species out of the state of nature Everything exists down here in the state of nature. A tiger eats the rabbit when it's hungry. Um, a thief steals from somebody else because he thinks it's okay to do so. These are beasts that live and exist in the state of nature. That's what a thief is. Same as a lion. I'm not concerned about the rights of a thief because he's existing down here at the state of nature level. He hasn't chosen to elevate himself. That's how I talk about it. We elevate ourselves out of the state of nature by reciprocating rights with each other. And working out the details of what rights we reciprocate is the most fun part of philosophy for me. What should be the requirement for the things that we choose to reciprocate? Well, they should be rules that are universalizable, meaning they function between all people in all times and all places. Because if they're not, you're just introducing rules that are going to bring you right back down into the state of nature. So it's important that we make our rules universalizable uh and consistent that means they they conform to the rules of reason they're not irrational you know they they pass the test of uh of of reason and conform to the evidence of reality those are the requirements for i think good moral laws and so we make these reciprocal agreements based on like the neo-lockean property norm that i just talked about and sort of the the live and let live principle that you guys are talking about these are universalizable rational rules for reciprocating rights between people they function at all times and all places. My rights on Earth in Dallas, Texas, between me and my wife are exactly the same as they are between me and you on the moon 100 years ago. They function everywhere the same way, deterministically, which without the deterministic part, 
would detach them from reality because reality is very deterministic and we can get into free will and blah, 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 if you want, but that's kind of a side <laughs> discussion. But, okay. So, um, that's the standard for me. I love and hearing a pro freedom guys argue for determinism. Yes, too. This too. makes me so me happy. Too. Me too. Okay. I, ho- I hope it doesn't step in. No, we'll leave that discussion <laughs> for another day. Cause that's a, that is Fun a discussion. can of worms right there. Yeah. So we choose to elevate ourselves up. Now, if the community next to us chooses rules that aggresses on little children, according to our definition, you're right. We are going to now enforce our definition of what constitutes consent, uh, uh, creatures that consent on the people around us because we feel like these eight-year-olds are obviously being harmed by this behavior. What we have done is gone down to the state of nature where we all already all the time exist to enforce something that we want, to enforce our will on other people. Is that libertarian? No, because we've left the realm of philosophy and we've decided to take it to nature, which is what we're always trying to avoid. Most people want to stay out of the state of nature. That's why people think we need a government to resolve disputes. They're right. So if you're going to have two communities and they're going to go to war over eight-year-olds, which they should, then it would behoove both communities to work together to, to, to negotiate and to come to an agreement on what constitutes a, a, a reasonable, let's say, presumptive age of consent, let's say. Um, we, can, we can talk about the details of that later, but I think it's kind of tangential. What I'm saying is, yeah, people are going to fight because that's reality. That's where we live. We live in a state of nature. And we're going to be able to elevate ourselves out of that state of nature with some humans. Not with all, not with thieves, not with taxmen, not with you know thugs, gangs, and government agents. Those people don't reciprocate. So we're in the state of nature with them and we should treat them as such. We shouldn't trust them. You know what I mean? So, okay, sorry. I've I've been going on for a while. Thank you for letting me talk. No, No, it's fantastic. I I think I agree with everything you said. I just want to double check. It sounds to me like what you're saying is you've thought about what the rules of the world should be and you've concluded that our theory of what I'll call our theory of property rights and what I'll call the live and let live principle are the two things you've concluded that we should have reciprocal reciprocal agreements with each other about, right? Yeah. And yeah. we get to impose that on people who don't agree. So that the another the next community, they have a different theory. They uh, they, as Andy says, they worship the magic banana or something. And uh, the magic banana instructs them that the age of consent is eight. We've learned about that in our community. And it's okay for us to barge over into their community, to trespass on their property, to take the eight-year-olds away from the 40-year-old men who have said they've consented to have sexual relations with them, maybe even punch the guy in the nose and I, take the eight-year-old. I hate, and- to, I hate that it has to be this topic to talk hey man, through this stuff. Hey, man, in, in our defense, so Mark, Mark and I tried to move it over to theft, and you you accused us of some yeah, fallacy, man, so you, we're you right want- back on age of consent. So. But is it okay for us to do that to save the eight-year-old? Okay, what, what's your definition of okay? Well, does it violate any principle in your view? Is it permissible? So the the only acts that I think you would be justified without shedding your moral framework would be universalizable rational ones. So if you are if you are if you are aggressing against that other community to rescue their 8-year-olds, it better be based on a universalizable, rational, non-arbitrary 
principle, something that is applying to everyone equally. In which case, I think we, I mean, an eight-year-old, that's an easy case to make. Yeah. So my answer is yes. Okay. So let me say this. I think a lot of people in the freedom movement get unnecessarily detoured by who's making the law and who's enforcing the law. I think neither of these things is very important. They could be tangentially important, but let me let me run this thought experiment by you. Would you be upset if uh, aliens from a distant galaxy came to the Earth and they said, you know, um, we're going to conquer you guys. We're going to rule you guys with an iron fist. And we put up our big fight. We send our best after them. But, you know, they have better technology than us. And they conquer us completely. So they send, they say, look, we, we now run the earth and uh, we're going to appoint a king. And this king is going to make all the laws and enforce all the laws and is going to rule with an iron fist. But then they say, look, don't fret. Um, this particular king here uh, in our society, we adopt uh, what Patrick says about the, the property rights and we also adopt what Patrick says about the live and let live principle. And that is what we are going to, in a scrupulously fair manner, with due process, better than we have right now, better than we could even do on our own. They are going to impose in that live and let live principle, and they're going to send alien police down to catch people who violate the principle and they're going to give everybody a fair trial and they're going to punish people reasonably who violate the principle. I would consider, I would say, excuse me, this wasn't a conquering. This was a liberation, and I'd be very happy about that. Would you join me in celebrating, or would you be upset? <laughs> you, sound very, you sound very Randian right now. This is what the objectivists want. Are you a Randian? No, I'm not an objectivist, and I, I like some things that Ayn Rand said, and I reject other things, but, but I'm somebody who thinks that the theory of property that we both agree on and the principle that we both agree on, whether we call it the non-aggression principle or the harm principle or the live and let live principle, whatever we call it, I would like that principle fairly and reasonably enforced everywhere. And if it was reasonably enforced everywhere, I have nothing to complain about. Do you join me in that or, or, or do you disagree? Can I, can I compete with your alien overlords to form a, a competing company to get your money to help enforce the exact same rule set? Or are they going to forcibly monopolize it? Let's say they're going to forcibly, let's take the worst case. They're going to forcibly monopolize. I mean, we could take both cases, right? I mean, one case they say, look, you can do anything you want as long as you don't find. Actually, I think it would come out that way, right? It would have to come out that way. It would have to come out that way. He would have to have the opportunity to offer people, hey, we need to change. So so the king comes out on, on TV for the whole world, and here's what the king says. He says, look, I like what Mark Victor's been saying. I've been watching Peace Radicals, and Mark has been saying, do whatever you want with your body, your property, your money, your time, with no restrictions except for one. You don't get to violate the live and let live principle, and we've got reasonable ways to figure that out. So you can form your competing agency. You can do whatever you want. As long as you're not violating the rules, you have no problem from us. That's the answer. There's no conflict then. So a thousand competing agencies for enforcing the live and let live principle could spring up and it'd be fine. There'd be no conflict because why would there be no conflict? Because the principles we're basing it on are universalizable and rational. Yes. So we're in total agreement. Mark's example. that's, That's why those principles are so important. If it's not universalizable, conflicts are inherent. But if it is universalizable, 
then you can have a thousand companies competing. Look, like one has pink uniforms and the other one has purple uniforms. It, like they're going to compete on nonsense, subjective nonsense. They're going to compete on advertising and PR and blah, blah, blah on peaceful subjective. Yeah, so okay, I don't think it's productive to reach that discussion, at least not at this point. At this point, what we say, because remember, we're not just a philosophical think tank. We're not in a philosophy club. We're trying to change the world here. And so we're trying to make this message marketable. That's why we don't talk about how you get to the principle or how you get to the, the theory of property. We also don't talk about how we're going to implement it in the smallest little subject. In fact, Andy and, made a very good point. Well, and as you're as your example that you just gave with the alien overlords clearly illustrates, we don't even have to take a position on the size of government yeah. or what type of government it is. We just care if it's voluntary. We, we just don't care reach if it's any of that. We don't talk about should government be big or small or not exist. Don't care. As long as the rules that exist wherever I'm standing on the planet are consistent with at least a reasonable interpretation of that principle. You got no complaints out of me. I don't think we got complaints out of you, Patrick, do we? Yeah, as long as it's consensual and within the realm of reason and universalizability, I'm on board. Always. Well, have. when you say it's consensual, some people are going to say, screw those, uh, the alien overlord. I don't agree with the damn thing he says. I don't agree with anything. I'm going to do whatever I want, to which the alien says, you can do whatever you want, but you don't get to violate the principle. Even though you didn't agree, we're still going to impose that on you, whether you like it or not, right? So to say that it's all consensual isn't really accurate, right? In terms of the competition part, it is. Like, I can choose a, a competing alien overlord, let's say, or a competing human with the alien overlord, and I can not consent to the alien overlord's agency, and I can consent to the human's agency. So as long as that relationship is respected, that's why I say consent. Well, it is, but but it is. But if you if you choose your human overlord and you guys get together and have a big meeting and decide the age of consent is eight, the alien overlord is going to say, sorry, you got to have a reasonable construction of the principle. We're not going to let you do that, whether you like it or not. You're going to get a reasonable construction, but you don't get an unreasonable I, construction. I don't like your word reasonable because that's interminably subjective. I wouldn't ever say reasonable. Like I would I would say objective, universalizable. But um, you used a phrase earlier that I thought was very interrelated with that concept, which is that rules should conform to the rules of reason. You're right. You're right, but I feel like I'm using it different than he is. I feel like he's using it in a legal context, which is like reasonable person. Well, what constitutes a reasonable person? These are hard things to figure opinion. out. We, these are things you know, like, people can disagree. When I say reasonable, I mean conforming to the laws of logic. Right. That, that, and, I think that's the difference in our usage. Si and science and things like that. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. But I mean, it's, right. at some point, don't we have to figure out what I would call a reasonable construction of the, there, there are unreasonable constructions of the principle, like the eight year old age of consent, like Andy's got bombs and in, in chemical weapons and things like that, that he parks in, in his house next to his fireplace uh, where the fuses are laying all there on the ground. And he says, this is, I'm not creating any risk of harm to anybody. Like, I think he's being unreasonable there, right? Doesn't somebody get to say, sorry, Andy, your construction of the principle is not reasonable. It's not rational. You're creating a risk, and we've decided that the risk you're creating actually violates the principle. I don't have any problem. I mean, don't we have to have a mechanism that figures this out? Because there will be people like Andy, and there will be an eight-year-old age of consent communities. There'll be all everything you can imagine we're going to see, 
right? I mean, God help us if there's a community that... Anyway, yeah. yeah They're yeah, already well, there. We, we've already seen them in the United States. There's, an eight-year-old, there's a community of eight-year-old age of consent people? Take, taking multiple wives and things like that with very, very young children. We've seen unreasonable constructions of, of this principle in our own backyard. I envision a world where I could pull up to Chick-fil-A and get chicken nuggets and contribute $5 to the pedophile hunting fund. Like, that's the world I want to live in. <laughs> Once again, man, we tried to get you off Age of Consent. We really did, but I'm glad we stayed on I'm glad we stayed on it and saw it to its conclusion but in, here. Anyways, very much like Andy said, in the midst of the discussion we were having with Matt Sands, he says, this isn't going to come up very often. And I think he made a pretty good point here. In terms of what we're trying to do with this movement and how we're trying to change the world to the extent we have any disagreement here and i'm not sure we have any actually i don't don't, there's nothing that stands out to me that i feel like we've got some disagreement here we got to make this marketable right because so far it hasn't been marketable we know we have a, a fantastic idea we know it works we know it will raise standards of living we know it will help people increase their happiness it'll decrease human suffering and, and I think the average person, mo- the vast majority of people would agree if they understood what the heck we were talking about. But we have failed to communicate our message to them. Where we really need help is not on the philosophy, recognizing there are still many areas to disagree on in the edges. We need marketing help. And that's actually what we're trying to do with Live and Let Live by chopping off the first part, right? The how do we get there? Chopping off the last part, all of the noise about what size should government be? What's the proper role of government? How does the state fit in? How all these little implementation uh, problems, we're chopping all of that stuff off and just say, let's let the local community decide. You get a reasonable construction and we move on. And we're trying to sell the meat of the message. What do you think of that approach? Uh, I think most people are statists, so they're going to apply a statist non-consensual rubric to that. And they're going to you know, lord over people with their local government. If we right. go after them with a, do you want to be statist or this or that, or do you like the non-aggression principle, then you're probably right. The average person's going to tune it out. But if you calibrate the con- the conversation with, how do you feel about live and let live? How do you feel about living your life and letting others live theirs? The vast to circle back to the very beginning of this conversation, you'll be hard-pressed to find somebody who takes a staunch anti-let live in position in their own lives. It's a, it's a mechanism and a doorway to opening up that conversation to getting the average person to understand these issues. Yeah, and I think we need to be realistic that we don't need to get everybody. We're not going to get everybody. We don't need to get everybody. We need probably about a third, right? Major movements have, have, uh, like they say, the American Revolution, roughly about a third of the people were in support of revolution, about a third of them were against, and about a third of them, like today, don't really care. Uh, Just tell me what flag to fly tomorrow morning. And so would a third of the people agree with the message that we're delivering if we could package it in a way that resonated with them? I, I tend to think so. And so um, maybe you'll join us and help us refine this message in a way that's scrupulously consistent with the philosophy, right? I don't want to say anything uh, that would be majorly uh, disagreements with uh, Murray Rothbard or, or even Walter Block or, uh, or David Friedman. All these people, I, I tend to agree, they all disagree on some small points. No two people agree on everything. 
But we don't want to compromise our principle. We don't want to say a little bit of taxation is okay. No, taxation is taking somebody's money without their consent. This always violates. This is a very clear case of violating the rule. But we have to provide solutions, right, for when they say, okay, well, how do we do this or how do we do that? or how? We have to provide an answer for that. And so we have to first not start the discussion like younger Mark Victor would have started the discussion, which is we need to get rid of the government or taxes or robbery or something along those lines. But we start with live and let live, a place that I think people can agree on. So anyways, I think that's um, – I don't know if we have other – little hairs to split on this but i, I frankly i thought we would no, have no. I, I, I mean let me agree with you like i i have never been and i can't say never but i've rarely been successful in a conversation with a normal person uh, starting with the nerdy philosophy you always start with the golden rule the live and let live the leave your neighbors alone and make them leave you alone um it's always the layer two that they get tripped up and they're like, oh, yeah, but I mean, I still get Social Security checks, right? Well, no, you can't rob your neighbor because you want some money. Like, sorry, that's not how that works. Like, it, that's when that's when you lose them, you know? But we can follow up with, yeah, you know, like, here's what I would say to the Bernie Sanders type, right? He's going to say, but Mark, there are people who are born less fortunate than us and we should help them. We should give them access to health care and uh, education, to which I would respond, I completely agree with you. I think there are people less fortunate and we should help them. In fact, a big mm -hmm. part of our movement is voluntary kindness. These are ethical questions. These, this whole category, these are ethical questions and they're important. They're part of our movement. We shouldn't just ignore them maybe like the libertarians have all these years, we should join ranks with you. I see you kind of making a little bit of a face. I don't think that the libertarians are pushing ethical values. I think they're pushing the principle, and I think they're pushing a theory of property, but they don't say, at least not as libertarians, part of our movement is voluntary kindness and helping people less fortunate. We can say that. And then I think we further can say, look, there are two possibilities here. Possibility one, we put our ethics in the law, uh, in which case, what do we say to the Muslim who wants to put Sharia law into the law? We, we either say, sorry, my morality is better than your morality, and we have an endless struggle, which is what we have now, or we say, well, maybe your morality is very good. I don't take a position on it here and now, but for the sake of peace and freedom, all of our morality, even the good stuff that I agree with Bernie Sanders on, like helping those less fortunate, even that, we take all of that out of the law for the sake of getting to a peaceful society. Now, let's get together and help those less fortunate. Let's do what Patrick is doing with his charity and showing people that we can actually still get things done voluntarily. Pa Patrick, ta people. Patrick, take the last word and then we're going to wrap up. Oh, I'm sorry. We're running long. I apologize. Yeah. So uh, I, I think in a way I disprove you like I am a libertarian doing what you're saying libertarians don't do. I started Voluntary Virtue, a private charity to to help people in need, uh, to help liberty lovers in need with with private voluntary charity. Um, but I so I, I don't know that libertarians don't do that because I'm doing it. Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. I would but, say you're doing it as Patrick. You're not doing it as as a libertarian. You are a li you're a libertarian, but you're many other things besides a libertarian. I'm simply saying the philosophy of libertarianism is about contouring the law around a theory of property and the non-aggression principle. Beyond that, 
It doesn't say anything else. It doesn't say we have to be kind to help others. In fact, you could be a complete, total jerk. You could be unkind and uncharitable uh, and miserable and a perfect libertarian. The same can't be said about live and let live. Well, then I guess we're both trying to expand libertarianism. Yeah. Love it. I guess that's my last word. (laughs) Patrick, uh, a couple more words from you, I hope. Give our listeners links and tell them where they can find your stuff and where we can find Anarchist Podcast and Disenthrall and whatever else you're working on. Uh, Links to all of the Disenthrall and Anarchist podcasts are on disenthrall.me slash platforms. You can find all that stuff there voluntaryvirtue.org is the website for the 501c3 we have an event coming up in december where we are going to be breaking laws to feed the homeless people in dallas because it's illegal to feed homeless people in dallas so we're getting about 150 people together well armed to keep the police away while we go and feed the homeless anyway uh so that's what we're going to be doing uh first weekend in december go check it out voluntaryvirtue.org um What else do we have going on? Peaceful Parenting University is a YouTube channel that I run where I teach people to be more principled parents with their children uh, through uh, putting the the principles that we've been talking about here into actual practice in your home with the interactions with your children, raising, creating a free market of equal individuals inside your own home will raise humans to believe that they should see these things in the real world. I think we get statism out of poor parenting and I'm trying to elevate that with peaceful parenting university. So yeah, that's, I love it. I love, there are a few things we could do to improve the world more than help each other be better parents. 100%. Strongest form of activism there is, is better parenting. We can can say with certainty that many, 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 maybe even the majority of our criminal cases, you can usually trace them back to bad parenting and and a bad upbringing and things. So yes, much respect for that. Absolutely. 100%. I I feel like there's so many more things we could have talked about today. Once again, I just feel like we didn't even scratch the surface of the most of the things. I'm pretty sure I love anti-subjectivism, by the way. (laughs) Um, And I want to spend some more time talking about that uh, philosophy. And I'd also like to get him and and Matt Sands together and kind of poke them both and get them to go at each other. Maybe do the six and a half hour version of the show. I think all four of us are going to agree much more. Let me say something about Matt Sands. I know we've been talking about you the whole time, Matt, but uh, he's actually a really talented reggae musician, too. Go check out his music. It's pretty awesome. All right, guys. So go and check out liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more. See what we're up to uh, on there. we got lots of fun, uh, awesome, cool events coming up. Uh, Chapters are popular popping up all over the world. So uh, if you want to get involved and don't just sit idly, be part of the solution, not the problem, start a chapter in your local area. And we have uh, monthly chapter meetings for the chapter leaders. Get involved. We have a book coming out. There's going to be conferences coming up. um, And of course, many, many other great podcast guests. So uh, we appreciate you guys tuning in. Mark, any last thoughts for our listeners tonight before we sign out? I just think that the whole chapter thing, my God, we just picked up a chapter in Colombia. We picked up a chapter in Canada. We picked up a chapter in Spain. Things I don't even know. If you ask me, name all the chapters. I don't know them anymore. This because, is a good sign. Yeah, yeah. Things are moving very quickly, and the live and let live message is resonating with people. And we haven't even kicked off the movement yet. All right. Well, awesome. everybody, thank you so much for tuning in, and uh, thank you to our guest Patrick Smith. This has been Attorney Andy Markintel and Attorney Mark J. Victor. We're the Peace Radicals. Peace. Peace.